This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Okay, here we go. Three, two, one, and welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Hello, Mr. Robert Gray. Hi, how are you, John? You know, I'm doing great. I've been better. I've been worse. I'm kind of in the middle of the road, but I'm, I'm oh, doing that's... great. Great is middle of the road for me. Well, that's that's good to hear. <laughs> I, I aspire to that. You aspire to that. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll start a free internet course and uh, and oh, send you a, send you a link. Um, you know, this has been a long time coming. I told you this over the phone a few days ago that, um, you know, this is going back a ways right around the beginning of my podcast, maybe a year ago. Um, mm-hmm. I was interested in speaking with you, uh, both for the podcast, but also just to get to know, I like to say hi to other Americans here in Norway, but, um, you seem to have a very interesting life. Am I right or wrong? I think you're in an interesting <laughs> position. It depends on your definition of interesting, I guess, but there, there are things I can put flourishes on things to make it probably sound better than it is. <laughs> well, if I lump you in that bucket with all of us Americans in Norway, you do have an interesting life compared to most. Um, you are an educator. You are a associate professor at the university in Bergen, correct? Right. Yeah. That's pretty special in and of itself, but it's even more special, even more interesting, more exciting when you have that type of job status as an educator at the same time as you are an immigrant to Norway. How did this come to be? How did you get to Norway? T- tell, tell me about your path here. Oh, you should have warned me you were going to ask me this question. This uh, is nah, a, man, we, this take, is we take a, it on the fly. A my, bad my, story. Um, your, your discomfort is my entertainment. Oh, good. Um, well, it, it's a it's a long sorted story, and I'll try to make it as short as possible. But I I never intended to come to Norway and uh, or to go anywhere like that. You know, when I was younger, I sort of dreamed of ending up in the Lake District in Northern England because it was so oh. beautiful there. But I never really took that seriously either. But and and I think my situation in Norway might be a little better than a lot of the other Americans that we know because. Um, most of the people that I know came here because of a relationship. Um, Usually they met a Norwegian that was living in the U S and they got involved and then they ended up moving back to Norway. And, and it's kind of hard to fit in when you have a Norwegian that's sort of native to the water and then uh, the foreigner coming in trying to fit into that person's old life. And, And that's the challenge that, I guess in some ways I'm I'm lucky to have missed. Um, I guess I was lucky as well because my wife has no friends, so there was no. <laughs> so we kind of had to we had to grow into Norway together. But I, I've been here almost twenty years, so you know that 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 transitional period. Although at times I'm very much aware that I'm a foreigner here, the transitional period for the most part went. Yeah, I, it, it was pain free for the most part for me. Um, well, that, that, it's an advantage that your wife doesn't have friends, I guess. But um, <laughs> but I, I just, you know, when when I got married 30 years ago, um, I was looking to enter into a PhD program. And my wife was an Air Force brat, and she lived all over the U.S. She was actually born in Germany. Um, and we met at the University of Alabama, where I was, uh, when we got married, I was finishing my master's. and. So I started a PhD program at Michigan State. 
And so I moved her from hot, hot, balmy um, (laughs) Alabama to to cold, faraway Michigan. And And and, as an Ohio uh, resident, as an Ohio State Buckeyes fan, I have to call you a traitor. I, I, okay, you're gonna have to build it up uh, now. The trust level is a little bit lower now. I mean, I guess given recent history, it's probably better to be a Michigan. I mean, it's Michigan State, not Michigan. That helps. Okay, that helps. That helps. um, Thank you. Thank you. And and also, you know, that I, I'm a, an Alabama fan, so Ohio State people should really be kind of um, bitter about that, given recent <laughs> um, things. But um, enough of that. Um, but the work that I do now, um, you know, when I went to Michigan State, I was studying to be an English professor and came to realize that there's no professional or not an easy path to professional success in that field. Um, no. You know, I, I applied for a community college position okay. in the middle of nowhere. Um, it was, I used to teach there as an adjunct when I was at Michigan State. It was an hour from a stoplight. Oh. And, <laughs> and, and people, when they had a, a full-time position come open, 350 people applied for it. Because they're, you know, big universities use their graduate students to teach the yeah. freshman comp classes. Yeah. And so there's way too many English PhDs and then there are jobs. Yeah. And so I got about three quarters of the way or more into my English PhD and said, you know, there are 250 grad students at Michigan State in English and one person a year gets a job. Uh, and so I'm Do like, the math. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to sell my soul and go into instructional technology. And so that, I ended up getting my PhD in that. But, um, and so when you're doing that kind of stuff, you start working with um, faculty at universities, the, the university teachers and helping them become better teachers with technology or just in general. And, and there's an email discussion list um, called the pod network that talks about these kinds of issues all the time. Okay. And there's also at least one job a day that is posted on that list. And, and when there's something from some far away, cold sounding place, I would forward it to my, email, to my <laughs> wife as a joke. Hey, what do you think about moving to Manitoba? Kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and so one day I'm, you know, come across one that says two exciting job opportunities in Norway. And I didn't even read it. I just stepped forward, said to my wife, said, hey, what do you think about moving to Norway? As a joke. As a joke. And and then it was during the summer, and she was a school teacher. And so she was at home. And my son, who was about to go into his senior year high school, was at home. And so she says, hey, Liam, what do you think about moving to Norway? And he was like, yeah, they know how to do civilization there. (laughs) And And he, for weeks... He nagged me. Have you applied for that job? Have you applied for that job? And and then after several weeks, right before the deadline for the posting, he there was something I wanted him to do, and he didn't want to do it. And so he finally said, "I'll do it if you apply for that job." <laughs> and um, so I just put my name and email address into the the Yobnorga, um yeah. website. And then the next day at work, my boss really made me angry. The day before he went on a vacation, so I spent his vacation filling the hell out of that application. <laughs> and, um, and so then they just, you know, offered me a job. And weird after a weird series of events, we just 
said, why not? Let's give it a shot. Was um, there any, was there any fear in that process when you were moving? Did you, were you, did you have any thoughts of what in the hell did I just do? Oh, I still, I still have those thoughts. Now, now how, mean, long, how long have you been here? What year was this when you first came? It was 2015. 2015. Okay. So it was five and a half years. And I mean, it's, it's been an interesting adventure. I mean, I haven't had any regrets. I mean, no. one of the things that happened was I was sort of assistant director at this learning center at the university where I was working in at the university of South Alabama. And I just always assumed that my career would be to, I had this boss who was the director and I was the assistant director. And I just assumed when he retired fairly soon, I would become the director and that would be my, my life. And ironically, when I was offered the job here, they said, before you decide one way or another, we want you to come to Bergen and visit and get to know everybody and get to know the city. And, um, and so I, I came, I didn't tell my work that I, what I was doing. I just said, I have a family thing I need to take care of. And, and, oh, and we man, came. did you just ghost them? You just ghosted them, huh? And, and so I came, but I never had any intentions of coming. I'm just thinking this will be a free trip. You know, the, the money that they offered wasn't enough to really justify it. You know, it was oh. just, but you know, that's a free trip to Norway. I hadn't been to Europe in a while. And, okay. So at that um, time you, you weren't thinking of actually taking the job. You, you were was, looking at it as, as an excuse to, I don't know, broaden your horizons, travel and just yeah. see what Norway was about. And it, I mean, it seemed like a great idea and a great, beautiful place. And, you know, so go look at it. My wife would never go for this anyway, but yeah. what the heck. Yeah. And, um, but then there's just some weird things happen. And while we were here, I got a, a an email from the department secretary saying that, you know, the boss has called, I'm supposed to get in at midnight Monday night. And, um, and the boss had called a meeting for nine o'clock Tuesday morning. Oh, and, and I said, when I saw the email, I said to my wife, he's going to announce that he's retiring. And so I'm thinking the universe is telling me, you know, stay in mobile. Yeah. Don't, don't yeah. come. The, this Norway thing's not going to happen. But then there were just some weird things that happened that made me, one, falling in love with the place and the people here, and two, thinking, okay, if I turn this great job down and expectations of getting the director job and I don't get the director job, then I'm probably not going to want to stay at that university. And so then I'll start looking for another job and to just get out of town yeah. will end up with a worse job than I have, than I turned down you know, taking a step back. Yeah, yeah. And, and so then a few months after I came, I realized that I would have gotten the director job if I had stayed and I've never had any regrets about it. So, because that was going to be my next question. Do you regret anything about coming? No, in? because the one of the reasons I, I thought seriously about this job in the first place is that I'd gotten my PhD in 2008 and then I got this administrative job and, and I was told when they created the center and I was made the assistant director that research was not a part of my job. And, and so it was, I was just basically a bureaucrat. Um, and, and, and I knew that if I became the director, I'd become more of a bean counter and, and I don't, care about that kind of stuff. I want to, I want to use my brain and be creative and, yeah, and do was, intellectual things and not just keep track of spreadsheets and who's taking what course. And I was going to say there's a certain that. amount of status 
in being the top dog, there's a certain amount of income uh, that goes along with that. But but maybe a sense of adventure is erased when you're at the top yeah. like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, like you say, you, you turn into a bean counter. You turn into uh, more of an administrator instead of more of a yeah a researcher, a doer. Yeah, and and this this position, you know, was where fifty percent of my job was doing research, and fifty percent of my job was teaching, and and so it was just like this this way I can actually do the kind of stuff I got my PhD for and can right. Right. contribute on a much broader level than just being the the manager of a program. I wasn't even really doing the program; I was just sort of telling everybody else what to do, and and I, I didn't really thrive in that situation it's, it's real interesting to finally hear how and why you came here because again you kind of stick out in this group of americans in norway you um you don't have a norwegian spouse and that is the case for most of us we have a norwegian spouse who clunked us over the head and dragged us over here um do you think yeah now i'm asking you to evaluate your marriage and your relationship but i, I was going to ask you do you think it was a benefit to have an american spouse here you know what i mean if she would have, yeah. we talked about this a little bit a few minutes ago but if she would have been if she was norwegian maybe she would have helped you open a few doors socially maybe she would have uh maybe it would have been an incentive to to assimilate into the culture have you had any thoughts about that well, not really. No. You know, it's. I think it's probably best best not to think about those sort of alternative yeah. spouse kind of things. <laughs> <laughs> Shame on me. I do. I do ask the difficult questions. <laughs> but, I mean, and it wasn't easy. I mean, it was kind of an easy transition for me because it was set up around me. You right. know, it was a it was a situation for for me to move into, and then my. I'm sure the school probably helped kids. a lot with finding a place to live, finding finding your way around the system and whatnot. Right? Yeah, they helped. I mean, there was there was more individuals in my department helping more than the, I mean, the school, the institution tried to help to the extent they could, but it was more um, people, you know, future colleagues that were helping me find places to live and all of that kind of stuff. And that, that support was great. And we've had a lot of support from people, but, you know, there was a, a long, hard transition for my wife and both my kids to get situated here. And now they was the most difficult about it. Um, well, my wife, it was finding meaningful work and it oh, took dear. a, you know, she, she had work off and on for the first year. Then she had sort of full-time work for a couple of years. That was not that satisfying professionally because okay. she'd been, a, she'd been a special ed teacher and speech therapist in a, American elementary schools and she came here and she was working as an assistant in the Barnahaga and that was just sort of um, not what she really wanted to do and now she's because she doesn't have an international or Norwegian teaching certificate she's working as an assistant in the first grade class now but that's but a little rough to swallow I would but, imagine but she's right now she's really liking what she's doing okay. um, she really likes the teacher that she's working with and the teacher respects her and her skill set and treats her not as an underling but as you know a colleague and and i, I think so she's really enjoying her work now good uh, good and that's good so to hear because not all, not all of us and you know i love what i do i've always been extremely fortunate uh in my in all my years here in norway but it's 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 a reality that a lot of us come here and struggle there's people who are highly educated back home in the States and they come here and there's issues with getting their 
certification in order so that they can be recognized for the skills that they have. Right. So uh, what a blessing for you then to be able to come over here and you start right away in your line of work. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have come. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just interesting. You, you were saying it was kind of as a joke that you were, you were even entertaining the concept of, or the idea of coming here at all. That's, uh, that's yeah, that interesting. Was the, yeah. Yeah. The only question I remember from my interview that was over Skype, um, was and it was really early in the morning for me because it was really late in the afternoon for them and and so they the only question i can remember them asking is why norway and i'm thinking am i gonna have to tell that story (laughs) (laughs) and and i ended up telling the story and they hired me anyway but um they hired you anyway oh it's it's just I, i think it's so cool uh, again, to hear um, uh, an example or to, to speak with an American who, who's, who's doing well here. It's, it's, again, it's a sad thing. Not all of us are doing well. Um, you also have this background as a, uh, you're a director for the, uh, for the, for the documentary? Or, yeah, yeah uh, you're, you're, I, you are the director for that documentary, correct? Yeah, I, yeah. I did most, most of the work, I guess you could say. And, um, uh, the documentary we're talking about is Mobile in Black and White. Uh, you guys can check that out on YouTube. I highly recommend it. I have to say, I haven't gone through the entire, all of the videos, but I've seen most of it. I think it was the fourth video that I've gotten about halfway through, but the others I've watched. And um, the stand-up comedian in me wants to say uh, a stupid joke about there being uh, so few white people in Alabama that are willing to talk about race and racial issues. Uh, how did you gather them all in one place? Ha ha. But the in, the reality of it is is that I think I think that that series of uh, films or this documentary, uh, whatever you want to call it, I think more Americans need to watch it because it throws my mind back to this past summer when um, you know there's all this. Um, craziness going on back in our country. I get emotional when I think about it because it, it's, it, we'll get into that, but it, it really affected me to see everything that was going on back home, everything around race. But one thing that I thought was beautiful, and I think it was an eye-opener for a lot of Americans, is that there are plenty of white people who are out there who are allies in the struggle for racial equality and for equality under the law. And I th- think that your documented, documentary reflected that it's not just black people who are talking about these issues there are white people out there and uh in all places in the south the deep south in alabama um what kind of feedback have you gotten from people about the the series of films oh that's a good question i mean a lot of it has to do with um you know and it wasn't easy to find I mean, and we, there were a lot of people we interviewed who didn't end up in the film. Okay. Um, and, you know, when we started out, we were just, we wanted to talk to just regular people. Yeah. Um, but we also, before we even, I think, interviewed anybody, we kind of came to the, the conclusion or the conviction that we, we didn't want to talk about racism in a conventional sense of how people think about racism as being somebody with a hood on or, or um, some 
you know, redneck with a Confederate flag throwing the N-word around. Right. Um, that racism also that's... is also microaggression. It, it's the small things. It's the subtle things. It could be a thought process. Doesn't necessarily have to be that action. You know, like you said. And, and that was. Yeah, and that was something that we wanted to to talk about too, and we didn't really talk that much about that either, because where where I think racism really impacts society, um, and we did this all before the Trump movement, and so things have kind of changed a little bit. And you know, we started this project in two thousand and ten, and it came out in two thousand fourteen. But um, you know, it's it's the institutional and structural structural levels of racism that really impact people's lives um you know i said probably inaccurately and and it's too big of a generalization but that conventional idea of racism that most people have and it's changed again in the last five years um as last summer kind of demonstrates um you know interpersonal racism has become much a much bigger deal because it was licensed by the most powerful person in the world um but before that, it was pretty much suppressed. You know, political correctness took away interpersonal racism. Um, and that's why people hate political correctness, I believe. But the thing is, is that since the late 80s, that that feature of American racism had sort of been repressed. But now, when you, now, when you say repressed, it, it, explain that. Are you... It was, you just don't see it. And, and again, you, you're probably in a better position to see this than I am, but um, it's not as in your face as it okay. was yeah. in the 70s and, and yeah. 60s and, and 80s and 50s. It's, it's more people have racism in their hearts, but if, if they're going to say the N-word, they're probably usually going to say it with their buddies. They're, they're not going to really throw right. it at, at it used a, to at be. A, it used, to, to be, it used to be more out open. Yeah, it, well, pre, pre-Trump, I think people used to look over their shoulder a couple of times. It's kind of hard for me to turn my head. I just had this next one. People <laughs> look over their shoulders a couple of times before they throw out the N-word. But since Trump, people are more prone to yeah. just throw it out there because he has made people think it's okay. It's all right to be racist. Yeah, so so most internalized racism, at least for white people, um, and interpersonal racism, that's that that's kind of was put under the wraps for for a couple of decades, yeah. and um, but but the outcomes of our social structures were the same. Our our neighborhoods were almost um, as segregated as they were thirty years ago. The you know, the truth that you can predict how your life's going to turn out by your zip code, zip code um, yeah. you know, where you go to school, the, you know, it's still, you know, incarceration statistics, all, all sorts of things are still very skewed racially, sure. even though there don't seem to be racist anymore. Right. Um, school. You can just look at the schools. Schools are just as segregated now as they were in 1970. And, and they're stigmatized too. A black school is a bad school. Yes. A white school is a good yeah. school. And and so you have the outcomes are still the same. Yeah. And, and so if we're going to address the issue of race in America or even Norway for that matter, um, you have to look at that 
institutional structural element. Just thinking about whether somebody's throwing an N-word around, that's not going to fix much. Yeah, that's that, that's a problem, sure. and people are hurt by that, but sure. not anywhere near the same level as they are by the structural yeah, level. Because I would say I'd be less hurt by someone calling me the N-word than I would by um, a mortgage company not giving me a loan to buy a home. Absolutely. You know, but how do we talk about this? How do we get this in the open when, you know, you, you mentioned political correctness and the, the, the push against being politically correct. How do we talk about race in this age where political correctness is just, yeah, they're shouting it down. Don't be politically correct. That was Tell it like it is. I like, I like him because he tells it like it is. That's... I wish I had a better answer yeah, for because, you. Because at the same time as they, as you have people, especially on the right, who are against political correctness, it's the people on the right who go batshit when you confront them about their racism, whether it's overt or covert racism. So it's like, come on, what do you want? How do we do, how do, we do this? Well, well, the challenge that we had, there are two challenges. Um, one is when we made the shift to talking about structural racism most people don't understand that concept and um explain us explain we, it to us how do you talk and, about structural well, racism well i i don't i don't know i mean that's yeah. why i interviewed 100 people and to try to get yeah. them to do it um you know but but you have the way the model that i like to think of is that there are four levels of racism broadly speaking there's the internalized racism which for white people is the idea of thinking their race is superior to other races. For for African Americans, it is a feeling of you know being told you're inferior your whole life, and so it sort of creates this self hatred um, in a lot of people that sort of cripples their ability to to be successful. Um, interpersonal racism is when one person sort of enacts their internalized racism on somebody else. And, and, and I subscribe to the, the definition of racism that includes an element of power to it. Yes. So when, when you talk about, you know, people will say that black people can't be racist and a lot of white people get upset about that. Um, racism implies power. You can, you can be prejudiced. Um, a powerless person can hate a, a powerful person because of race or it's yes. probably more about power, but is that racism I don't know that I want to get into too much semantics there, but I think that racism has some element of oppression to it. You have to, you have to have a ability to exert power over somebody yes. to be truly racist. And in that sense, a lot of the people that we stereotypically think of as racist have limited amount of social power to enact yeah. on people because yeah. they're usually poor white people that, um, but then again, that's a scapegoat for, for the system. And yeah. then, yeah. And, and then you have in, um, institutional racism, where usually well-meaning non-racist people will enact policies. Sometimes they're unconscious. They were created back when people were more overtly racist, but we're still doing the same kind of processes that we've always done. But it's kind of like the thing where the eighth grade guidance counselor sees the Latino young man who's got a lot of academic ability, but she tracks him into the vocational school because it'll be better for him. Yep. Um, um, that, that kind of thing. Um, there's also the, the mortgage kind of stuff you were talking about, the redlining, all these other, you know, there are many, many kind of um, 
examples of that throughout history and throughout all of our institutions that uh, it's usually not racist people doing these things. Right. And a lot of these things are done with good intentions, but they lead to racially inequitable outcomes. And I, I think systematic racism or systemic racism is the aspect of racism that we should pay the most attention to and that we should most try to fix. Because like you said, it's not necessarily that overt racist who is involved in institutional racism. Very often people are very unaware that they're engaging in some sort of institutional racism or allowing it to happen at least. It's simply because that's the way it's always been and they just don't recognize that as racism. Um, it's mind-blowing how many people don't understand what redlining is, for example. Uh, oh, come on, you can buy a house anywhere you want. Where do you want to live, John? You can live anywhere you want. Well, really? Can I really? Let me tell you a few things. And and I, I, can, I can just, I, it, it brings forth a visual of people just rolling their eyes and checking their watches and just cutting me off in the conversation. People don't want to hear that. Yeah. And and it's an interesting yeah. phenomenon because again, it's those same people who say political correctness should just be not be a thing. In other words, you should be able to say anything you want, and yet they try to suppress that discussion when it comes to uh, to institutional racism. It's amazing. And that's you know, I, I guess one of my epiphanies in my life along that line was learning about white privilege. Um, yeah, because I grew up in Alabama, a small town in Alabama. I was trained by very skilled people on how to be a racist and how to be a, a good conservative. And I, um, you know, and I, I, I'd like to think I resisted it and that I didn't fall into that trap early on. And, and I think, um, you know, I, 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 do think I probably resisted it about as much as somebody could in that situation. Um, but you know, there were certainly imperfections in my worldview along sure. that line as, sure. as there still is in a lot of ways, but, um, but, you know, going to university and then, and it was in Michigan that my neighbor who was a doctoral student in psychology, um, gave me an article one time by this lady named Peggy McIntosh about, white privilege and it's like this three or four page little thing and it just blew my mind at how you know this is this is the modern manifestation of what racism in america is it's not that white people are going along consciously oppressing black people it's that white people unconsciously um, think of themselves as the norm and everybody else as yeah. the other. And, and it, it just, it really blew my mind. And, you know, now because of mobile black and white, I, I've had dinner at Peggy McIntosh's house and I've yeah. had um, my last book of poetry. She wrote a blurb for it. And that's probably the you, nicest blurb write, I've ever. You write poetry I've, as well. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's, okay. that's kind of where I, um, that's what I, I would do for a living if there was if there was any way anybody could do that for a living, but I'd just be a lot better at it. Um, but <laughs> but you know, she I asked her to write. My publisher asked, "Could you get somebody famous to do a, a blurb for your book?" And so I I thought of her, and I was like, "She's not even going to respond to this email." And um, 
and she wrote the nicest blurb I've ever seen on any book. It was it was really cool. But um, but that that I think is what enables a lot of this because you have this sense of um, you know white as the default, and so when you get rid of political correctness or when you complain about political correctness, it's because it calls attention to that. Yeah. And it, and it recognized that there is this oppressed other that is that, that oppression and that otherness is a problem. Um, but then again, political correctness is in itself a white privilege manifestation. And it's a conservative idea because, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Um, Maybe I'm not as plugged in as I would like to think, but I think the first time I started hearing about political correctness was in the late 80s. Um, yeah, right 1988, 89. Yeah. Yeah. You start hearing the term African-American, Native American, Asian American. I think it was 2003 or 2004 was the first time I ever heard anybody other than myself use the term European American. Okay. There was there was African-American, Asian-American, Native American and Americans, right. just regular exactly. Americans. Just regular, yeah. <laughs> and um, and so everything is sort of defined against American. There is a, there is definitely a white default in America. Uh, you know, I, I see it here in Norway, for example. I have people. Oh. I have people who you know. I, I I practically have to give them a blood test, a DNA test, to get them to believe that I am an American citizen. Like no no but really what are you really where did you come from before that like I didn't I came from my mother's womb I didn't come I, I'm I'm born and raised in America and and they can't understand that concept of me being a full blooded American because white is the default for the yeah. United States but there's there's also a thing that I call Norwegian privilege that oh. I think is. Yes. Which is white privilege on steroids, but that's a, that's a different podcast. White white um, privilege on lutefisk. Yes, but you know, back to the definition <laughs> thing. Just to finish the thread. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. Is is that's that, my ADHD kicking in? Sorry. Yeah, I, I have the same problem. But that there's the you know, institutional, and then there's structural, and and structural is sort of the intersection of all the different institutional and historical and interpersonal. Um, forces combined together that create these rigid um, social structures that create inequities. You know, they basically churn out inequitable outcomes for people of color so that you have, um, you know, segregated neighborhoods, segregated schools, um, the, all the statistics about um, going to jail, you know, white people for the yeah. same conviction yeah. don't go to jail. And, and the, the, the famous crack cocaine law that was, I think, you know, powder, the penalty for crack cocaine is a hundred times yes. what it, um, what for powder cocaine, because black people use crack and white people use powder. And then that was called out yeah. and to fix it, they only made it 20 times worse rather you know that's 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 creating you know equality in america well what has happened what has happened to our debate environment in the united states when we can bring up facts like that let's talk about the incarceration rate for example that uh black people black men especially are 
you know, it's, it's, it's practically a railway that goes straight from the womb to the prison system. And there's all kinds of facts and, and statistics about that. And you can bring that up to an opposing person in some sort of discussion or debate, and they'll just blow that away and say, no, that's just not the way it is. Stop complaining. You, um, you know, you're given every opportunity to succeed in America. If you end up in prison, it's your own fault. How, how do you engage somebody like that in a debate? Or is it even necessary to engage them? What do you think? Um, there are two ways to answer that. I'll try to remember to get through both of them. Um, <laughs> one is, and, and this was the guy that is one of the, the best figures in our film was a guy named John Powell, who um, is at UC Berkeley now. Um, he's a law professor, one of the three or four smartest people I've ever talked to. Um, and he, you know, we, we were invited as the first public showing of anything that we did in, in Mobile and Black and White. Um, we were invited to a conference at the Clinton Library in Little Rock to um, talk about our project. And we showed the very rough draft of the first segment of the film. And, but John Powell was the keynote speaker. And one of the reasons we agreed to go to this was because, hey, if John's there, maybe he can do an interview for us because he was somebody that we'd wanted to interview. And he didn't talk about this in the, in the interview, but in his keynote presentation, he, he said that, you know, most of the people in this room are academics or they've you know had a lot of academic training and academics really like logic and, and data and, um, and all of that kind of stuff and argument. And that's all well and good, but it doesn't change anybody. You know, the way that the human psyche is wired is that we get all these facts and figures and we're moved by them temporarily, but it quickly sort of dissipates because, you know, the that way that our, our psychology works, it just kind of, it, our conscious mind is doing all of this stuff um, it's like 4% of our mental activity or something like that. I'm, yeah. I'm really bad with numbers. But but then the, the vast majority of what's going on in our consciousness and in our brains is unconscious. We're not aware of it. And so all these biases, you've probably heard the term unconscious bias. Unconscious They're bias. these things that we can't control. We have it's sort of like our, our lizard brain or, or something. Yeah. And most of our rationality happens in our conscious mind. Um, and the logic stuff doesn't get through to the unconscious. What, what changes us, um, and this is, I think, the biggest failure of our film project, um, and it was something we knew all along, we just didn't know how to fix it, was um, stories. People are changed through stories, which is why most documentaries that you watch, they're talking about a big social issue but they're choosing right. one person's experience personal to, account to yeah. shed light on that because right. when we when we hear a story we put ourselves into that person's situation yeah. and and that over time changes the way that we think and feel about things and it's it's not a aha moment very often with many people it's sort of the slow gradual development that is impacted by storytelling, not by um, 
lecturing at people. Right. And, right. and another thing that I don't know how successful it's been um, in, in our project, but one of the biggest problems in the political debate milieu now, especially in the U.S., is um, my daughter will be mad if I use this term, but it's kind of the wokeness principle that um, everybody is absolutely convinced of their rightness. Yeah. And and so when you talk to somebody on the other side, you're not talking to them, you're not talking with them, you're yelling at them. You're yelling at them and you're and, trying to pull them over into your side. But no, you're their, not. You're trying to tell will. them they're terrible. You're you're telling them how bad they okay, are. Okay, I see. Yeah. Yeah. And and how wrong they are and how stupid they are. And that's a, that's a way to feel good about yourself and how righteous you are and all of your own virtue, but it it doesn't I ever see, win a convert. Yeah, no, and I saw that quite recently uh, on my own Facebook feed. I put a post up. I said uh, something to the effect that um, today's practitioners of Jim Crow wear a navy blue suit, a red tie, and a Republican Party pin on their lapel. I posted that and then backed away. And there's, there's probably like 150 comments back and forth. And not one person convinced the other that they were right. But there was a lot of ugly words and F-bombs being thrown back and forth. And it's like, yes, this is how we discuss these kind of things these days. And it's pretty sad. It's pretty sad. Yeah. And, and so what we tried to do with our film... Um, was to avoid that. You know, we, we kind of figured there was 20 or 30% of the population that was totally on board with what we're saying. We don't really need to tell them very much. No. You know, they're already on the what we perceive to be the right side of this. And there's probably 15 or 20% of the people that there's nothing that we could do right. to get them on our side. They're entrenched racist yeah. SOBs. Um, but then there's this big 50% or so in the middle that are well-intended, good people who just haven't had the light turn on for them because they're sort of blinded by this white privilege thing. They're blinded by, um, whatever else. And they, they, if they could just see the light, so to speak, then they would join with us. Um, and, you know, that's probably naive and too romantic of a notion to think that, but that was what we thought was if we can carefully package our message so that we don't turn them off as thinking, okay, this is just a bunch of people complaining about this race crap anymore, aren't we past that? Um, then then I, we, we thought we could reach some people. And, you know, of the thousands of people who have seen the film and hundreds of people who have participated in the formal processes that we did, you know, I know a few people that have kind of said, oh, that's really cool. But but most of the people in those numbers, I said, were, were already on board. Yeah. You know, it, it's really hard to get people to come to the table. And, and when you do get them to come to the table, they start talking about how I'm colorblind. And yes. How do you respond to that by saying, but that's stupid. You know, colorblindness implies that there's something wrong with color and you can't get past that. Right. Uh, 
And and well, so there's just nothing you can do with that argument. It's just such a sad thing that debate has debate is dead. <laughs> there's no room for debate anymore. People, like you say, they just want to yell back and forth. And and I use the analogy of people trying to pull them into onto their side, but I guess you're right. They're not even trying to do that. They just want to point out how the other side is wrong. If we could just get back to a let's forget about using the word debate. Let's just have a conversation about these things. But who's willing to do that? Well, I mean, this is this might be too much, and especially since I didn't rehearse it. So we'll see if it comes out intelligently. But I'm not convinced that debate ever really happened. Um, okay. I, I think it's I think it's become less civil than it used to be. There used to be sort of this mutual respect. Um, there yeah. probably was also less ideological divide between the the debaters. That you know the difference between Republicans and Democrats fifty years ago I don't think is as big ideologically oh, as God, it no. is now. Um, but and and this is a, a revelation I had fifteen years ago or something. I was I had moved to Mobile, Alabama, and I'd um, met this guy who was very conservative, but he was a fun guy to be around, and uh, you know seemed like a good guy. And I think he's he is a good guy, but um, but we were just absolutely opposites politically. Yeah, and we and were talking okay. one day. Yeah, it should be. And we get along fine. But this sort of this thing that I'm about to say damaged our relationship, I think, even still to today. Um, you know, he said, you know, Rob, you're just too smart to be as wrongheaded politically as you are. <laughs> and and, and I said, the well, to that. thank you. <laughs> I, I said, well, I, I've been kind of thinking the same thing about you. Um, and, and so we decided that we would just through email would explain why we are situated we are the way that we are politically. And so you guys willfully went into that deep yeah, dark and hole. Yeah. like 3 or 4 days doing nothing but writing emails with this guy. And and I got frustrated because he's an attorney. And what he would do was he would pick, I would write four pages email and he would pick one word choice that was kind of sloppy. Okay. And then he would write his whole four page email about that one word. And I'm like, that is not anywhere near the point of what I said to you. But, but I also said that, and I came to a sort of a realization in that because I was raised in Sylacauga, Alabama. Um, and I was trained to be a good conservative Republican thinker. Um, I know what it means to think that way and, and why people think that way. Yeah. And, um, and I said that, and he was like, you're just making generalizations and stereotypes and all that kind of stuff. But, but what I, I, maybe, but I, you know, I said, I, I know where you're coming from, from a rationality standpoint. And I outgrew it. Yeah. I, I sort of saw where it doesn't hold together. And and I just can't think that way anymore. Um, or I refuse to think that way anymore. And But I, I came to realize through that conversation, and I've read other people writing about this since then, is that it comes down to what you think truth is. And when the reason you can't have a debate anymore is because what we consider 
truth varies considerably yes. from side to side. Yes. Um, and yes, it's a, a terrible generalization with broad strokes. And so there are exceptions to this. But, but I, I think that in broad strokes, you can say that conservative people tend to think in black and white, that things are absolutely right or absolutely wrong, absolutely true. Um, and people who are more liberal or progressive or leftist in their thinking tend to see the world in shades of gray. And they either don't believe there's absolute truth or they sort of buy that basic level of the garden or basic tenet of the Garden of Eden is there might be um, absolute truth out there, yeah. but because of our human finiteness, Right. We don't have access to that. You know, this guy was basically telling me I was wrong because God thinks this way. And I was like, who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> yeah. um, how arrogant is it you, for you to think you know what God thinks or yeah. what God knows? I mean, yeah. isn't that what makes him God and makes us not God? Um, and so there might be absolute truth out there, but we as humans don't have access to it. We just have to do the best we can. And, and so when you think of truth as something that's socially constructed versus something that is from the word of God, and if you can find one statement in the Bible that isn't contradicted by another statement in the Bible, I'm, I'm interested in you showing it to good, me. Good point. Um, and, and so there's, there's just, you can't argue with somebody who defines the bedrock of what makes something right or wrong on a different level. It's just, that's impossible. When, when you say that in general, people on the right have this absolute sense of right and wrong, this black and white uh, uh, view on things. Um, it's kind of scary because I attribute that analysis uh, as something that is easily applied to the Trump base. Um, they, they, I mean, there's so many examples of, you know, they, they, they put this guy up on a pedestal and worship him almost as a God and no. they ignore all of his flaws. And my God, how can you not see this man's flaws? I mean, it's everything from his God works with flawed vessels. Amen. Amen. You know, and you and I know that, <laughs> but these people on his base will not even acknowledge that this man has flaws. You know, for example, I, I, I support President Biden. I, I support Joe Biden being in the White House and being our president and leading our country. I support that. I'm all for it. But at the same time, I can say that man is flawed. I don't agree with everything he does. He has some issues. He says and does things that I don't agree with. But you don't see that with Donald Trump and his supporters, at least no one who admits it. And... Yes. It's not just his base, but it's creeping up into the, for example, the legislative branch. How can you have someone like Mitch McConnell, who, um, in one breath, he says that he blames Donald Trump for the insurrection, and then a couple of days later, was it even a week later, he says that if Trump were to be the next Republican candidate, he would support him. I don't understand that way of thinking, and I don't think you see that type of those type of statements or that way of thinking on the left. You have, you have a large group of people who will criticize President Biden, uh, both at our level, you know, as citizens, but also in Congress. There's people who challenge what he is doing, but you just don't see that on the right. 
I'm sure that um, anybody on the right who might watch this and... um, They stopped long ago. (laughs) But I'm I'm sure, I mean, and I see it all the time. You know, I've blocked a lot of, not blocked, but unfollowed a lot of Facebook friends over the last five years because I just can't deal with the things that they post and I don't want to get into arguments with them and it's just better for blood pressure and those kind of things to ignore it. But they would say the same thing about Democrats. Um, But I, I really think it comes down to McConnell is... How can I say this in a semi-respectful way? Um, he's just very instrumentalist. I don't think he believes anything. Um, I mean, he has this. He wants, you know, he does have these hardcore conservative principles about. But I think he whatever. does what he needs to do in order for things to be best for him. Yeah, well, and, I think he's a very selfish politician. And he's very good at winning. Yes. He will do, he oh, has yeah, no ruthless. scruples or he's morals ruthless. when it comes to winning. He will he, do anything to he win. He is absolutely ruthless, and I don't think he cares about procedure or precedent. I think he wants to do whatever it takes in order for him to win. But At times it may appear it. that he's doing things on behalf of his constituents or whatever, but I don't think that's what motivates him. I think he's a, I think he's a crusty old man who loves his position of power, and he's going to do whatever it takes to stay there. And he, um, and I think he hated Trump from the beginning. I think but, he did, but but Trump made it possible for him to do a lot of winning. There you go. And it doesn't matter, you know. Trump's not any worse after January sixth than he was before. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, maybe a little bit, but <laughs> he's he's the same piece of whatever. Yeah, that he after, hasn't changed before as, as he was after. He, he's um, motivated by the same things that he was before. So McConnell can't do anything with the Democratic president the way that he could. I mean, he can stop things, but he can't proactively do things with a Democrat in the White House the way that he could with Trump in the White House. And basically, I think people made a big deal about McConnell saying that. Of course, McConnell's going to support whoever the Republican nominee is. You know, when he said that, You've got to believe he was hoping to high heavens that Trump wouldn't be the nominee. Um, but he's he's just interested in his team winning. That's yeah. what it's about. And that's what it's about for the people that can support Trump, like you were saying. But but the thing is, is that this cult of personality, this idea that he is this holy vessel of God. And and so I if truly you admit, don't understand it. I truly if, if don't understand would, it. I don't either, but if you admit to any of those faults that you're talking about, then you kind of have to start admitting all of them. And so it's putting this, you know, lipstick on the pig and just pretending it's beautiful lets it, it's just easier to live because the, you know. Are people just intellectually lazy? Oh, I don't even know if it gets to the, it's lazy. I don't know if intellectual is the right word. <laughs> um, but, and that's another point that I, that I make a lot that I think is important is that I think some Republican politicians are stupid. Um, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, the Bobert lady in Colorado, yeah, but do you, Alabama's on, new Senator Tommy Tuberville. But Taylor Green, for example, do you think she's stupid and really believes this BS that she puts out there? Or is she kind of McConnell-ish 
and she knows it's a bunch of crap and she's just doing it because it's a way to win. Well, I think they're all doing that, but I don't think there's a, she's not as, she's not McConnell intellectually, but you know, the, the great example is Alabama's great new Senator Tommy Tuberville. Um, Jeff Sessions is another one. Um, one of my biggest disappointments in, in my life was the organization that actually supported the development of Mobile Black and White was a group called Mobile United that was created in the early 70s when schools were integrated in Mobile, Alabama. It, they created this organization of white and black civic leaders to come together and try to f- figure out how to make this work. And over the years, this kind of thing has got worked out a bit. Um, it became sort of a, a social club where they would meet once a, a month and somebody from the chamber of commerce or the airport or something would give a little talk. And, and, and one month they had Jeff Sessions come and, and give a talk. Okay. And, and I've always thought of Jeff Sessions as sort of playing a character like Stephen Colbert used to on his comedy central, you know, <laughs> he, he's, He's just—he's not that stupid. He just plays that stupid on TV because he's playing <laughs> to his his base yeah. or his constituents. Um, and so here he is, and some of the smartest, most powerful people in the second largest city in Alabama, and he's the same guy as he would be at the Theodore Bowling Alley. I mean, he was just like, I don't like it. And, you know, and, and it was, it was, it was during the, the Obamacare negotiations when they were going through all that. And he would not say Obama's name. That's you right, know, I it was that. like yes. Voldemort. He would not say Obama's name. He, he said Obamacare once, but it was just, you know, he, but many times he would say, I don't like it. My constituents don't like it, and American people don't like it. And you know, and he's from Mobile or around Mobile, and he he was a lawyer in Mobile, became a, a U.S. prosecutor, yeah. and um, and so I have a lot of lawyer friends in Mobile, and I asked them, you know, who is this Jeff Sessions guy? You know, I was expecting to see nuance and sophistication and, yeah, in his audience. Yeah. And thinking back, it was almost like a parody of some hick town, southern, slightly ignorant lawyer. It was almost like a parody when I think back on it. But, you know, but the thing that is true about America or Alabama politics, and I think Republican politics in more and more places, is they're not stupid. They just think their voters are. And, and they're playing to those people to get them to do it. And like Tommy Tuberville, I think, I think he's trying to do that, but he's also, he's just stupid. He doesn't get it at all. Um, I don't know whereas, too much about him. Is he into all the conspiracy theories and, and, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he's just trying to, he, his whole platform was, I'm there to support Trump no matter what yeah. Trump is God, yeah. I'm Jesus kind of thing. And I, he he is one of the front runners in this whole the election was stolen fiasco, isn't he? If I remember right, I want to say I saw him on or something about him on CNN that he is yeah, one he of the front runners for spreading that that idiocy. Well, the con- interesting conspiracy to me was he's the person that Trump and Giuliani were calling while right. the Capitol That's was in is, yeah. lockdown. Um, That's right. And he was trying to give them updates to 
you know, he was an active agent in all of this yeah. stuff. But I, you know, one of the the great contributors to Mobile Black and White was the Mobile's political cartoonist J.D. Crow, who's through that process became what I would like to call a good friend. You know, I sort of moved to to Norway, um, so that's put a little bit of a dent in that. But he had a great cartoon yesterday that the other guy from Alabama that was at the rally that got everybody stoked up to attack the Capitol was this guy named Mo Brooks, who's, um, I guess, my son's representative now. Um, he's from Huntsville, Alabama, up north, and he's announced this week that he's running for Senate in Alabama to replace Richard Shelby, who's been there for 40 years. Yeah. And and Stephen Miller is his running mate. And, and not his running mate, he's his campaign manager. And okay. so you've got this, how can we stoke all these white supremacist fires? And Mo Brooks comes across as the dumbest person ever on television. And I don't know if he is or not, but he plays that character well because he just thinks his his constituents are stupid. Are and they? That's, but are they? That was what is how how can it be explained that there are so many people who fall right into these conspiracy theories? Uh, there's so many people who support Trump no matter what. Um, how can that be explained? Is it stupidity? Is it or let's say ignorance? Is it ignorance of fact? Is it ignorance of the situation that America finds itself in? It's um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's. I don't know, but my my take on it is that, um, and I hate just blaming things on Republicans, but, um, you know, in the mid to late 80s, Reagan did away with the Fairness Doctrine, which gave birth, gave birth to right-wing hate radio and eventually to Fox News, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh, all these guys. And so they've been... Once, once the media didn't have to be fair and balanced anymore, you had Fox News coming in saying they were the only ones that were fair and balanced, and they were the least fair and balanced of any of them. They're not even certified as a news organization because they don't, even after the fairness doctrine is done away with, they don't fit the standard of journalism to be called a news organization. Um, but they have become the default um source of information for 40% of the country. Yeah. You know, the, the mainstream or lamestream media has been totally discredited by, with these people. And so, and now Fox news is too lamestream. And so you've got these other people going along. And, and so you've got three decades or more of people coming in saying, the truth is not the truth. Yeah. The Democrats are evil. Hillary is Satan. Um, so you've got this narrative that fits. And, and a, another thing about conservative thinking, and I don't know if it's something about conservatism or just something unique to the American situation, is one, American conservatives, I think, are the only group of people that if you present to them facts and figures and data that um, goes against their perception of what is true, then that only convinces them more that, yes. that they are right. Yeah. Um, and that, that is a, a crazy phenomenon that I don't, it's been documented, but not shown. But um, 
The other thing is that we just, we, when you have a worldview, it's, it's sort of like um, when you start studying theories of science and, and then you start looking at how theology has happened um, and, and the, the logic and science of theology. Um, you know, coming up, what is it? Thursday is March the 25th. Do you know why Christmas is December 25th? No, why? Because it is perceived that the first Easter, you know, is calculated by somebody, that the first Easter happened on March 25th. Okay. And, and because of the d- divine symmetry of God's creation, then that would mean that the, um, that the Immaculate Conception had to happen on March 25th. And nine months from March 25th is December 25th. And, and that, is, that is why, you know, that is, you know, the way that most um, conservative religious thinkers tend to think is they have their conclusion. Yeah. The Bible gives them their conclusion. Yeah. So then you construct the evidence in a way that supports that conclusion. And anything that doesn't fit that is faulty or wrong. And... So you you know if you're if you're saved and you're you've got the right you know my worldview, then you know what the truth is, right? And, yeah. and you construct all the other evidence to support it. That um, could be a whole podcast episode in itself. The way uh, this whole thing about how the right has has uh, interpreted the Bible and how they put it to use in their in in their politics. Um, I don't know. I just don't, you know, I, I, I consider myself a Christian. I am a Christian. I, I know the Bible and I don't see anywhere in the Bible where it tells me to condemn and to criticize and judge anyone else because they don't interpret the Bible or anything in life for that matter, the same way I do. And yet you see the right doing exactly that ruthlessly, relentlessly. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll send you my, the PDF of my last poetry book. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> that's kind of what it most. This it's it's called Jesus Walks the Southland, and it, it's in three different sections. And the first section is mostly about Southern politics, mostly about race, and then the the second section is about Southern religion. Send me and, that. I'd love to read it. Send, send it. Got, yeah. um, yeah, you know, I mean, yeah, and then you have this thing. It's it's almost a tradition where uh, the Bible is used to justify things like racism. It was notoriously used to justify slavery. They would point mm-hmm. to to their interpretation of certain passages, mostly in the Old Testament, about uh, it's God's will that the white man mm-hmm. is on top and the black man is subject to him. They'll point to that in the Bible, and and I. I I don't see it, but I, I have a theory. I don't think that there's, well, I think there are very few racists. There's just a small percentage of racists out there who truly believe in their racism. I believe that most racisms, ra- racists know that racism is wrong, but because of social constructs, maybe because of the way their family is set up, they just don't dare to even entertain the thought of living their life differently. They don't entertain the thought of accepting other races. That's, that's a belief I have. I don't know. Am I naive or? 
No, uh, my my theory, and this might be the most publicly I've ever stated it, um, but I've decided that the definition of racism, you know, when you said a minute ago that there are very few racists, I think. Uh, yeah, and I, I misspoke. I misspoke. I, I was going to say, uh, I kind of started to say something that I changed, but what I was saying is I think there are very few racists who truly believe in their racism. In, oh, other, yeah. in other words, I think that most racists know that they are wrong in their way of thinking when it comes to race, but they just don't dare to step outside of that and entertain a different view. They don't want to... Um, you know, they don't want to lose their family. They don't want to lose their support structure socially. So they just continue blindly down that path of racism. And every once in a while, they might get some kind of reminder that they're, they're, they might be a little wrong, but they just keep on marching down that road and, and embracing their racism. Well, I, I think there's um, sort of two aspects of that. One is we don't have a um, collectively arrived at decision of where the bar is. No, we don't. I mean, I think you can place the bar where nobody's a racist and you can place the bar where everybody's a racist. And, and there's no, and there's a complete continuum in between and we don't, everybody has a different definition yeah. of where that bar should be. Right. Right. And, and my theory is that for everybody, racist means anybody more racist than I am. <laughs> and and by that definition, nobody is a racist. Yeah. You know, people in the Klan say that they're not racist. Yeah, yeah. And and I don't think they're they're you know I think they believe what they're saying. Um, you know, and I think I don't know that I could comfortably say, despite all of the stuff that I've done, especially in my adult life, that I don't think I can say I'm not a racist at some level. I mean, there's no way that you can escape certain things. I think everybody has some some degree of where they could be called out on something. Finally, but, we have something that we disagree on, because I don't believe that. Well, I don't, I mean, I don't believe I'm racist by any sort of generally held definition, but, and I've never taken the unconscious bias test, but I'm sure there's somewhere in there that, you know, there, there are thoughts that I have. Um, I was having a conversation with somebody that we're trying to recruit to a, a job here in Bergen from California. And, and I was talking about the, you know, the virtues of Norway and, and of Bergen. And I started talking about how there was, you know, there are no bad neighborhoods in Bergen and, and how the neighborhood that I used to live in in um, Mobile was, you know, one of the things that sort of convinced me that maybe we should come here is when that I visited that time and I was at a future colleague's house for dinner and his daughter was nine months older than my daughter. And he said, you know, so they were both 15 at the time. Um, and he would say, you know, she would leave the house at midnight, go get on the Bibona, go into the city, watch a movie, and then come back at three o'clock in the morning. And he would not think twice about that. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I said, my daughter won't even take her dog out in the front yard to pee <laughs> after dark. And yeah, so I'm talking to this guy about bad neighborhoods, and I'm thinking, damn, that sounds racist. Um, yeah, but is that racist, know, or is that just a straight-up observation? I don't see any racism in that. Well, but you think about the neighborhood that I lived in was sort of gentrified, and it was sort of segregated by street. So on our street, there were no black people. On the street, you know, across yeah. from our front door, there, there weren't. But the street behind us, there were. At the end of our street, there were. And it was... You know, there was a sense that it was dangerous in our neighborhood, 
and and it's more because of poverty than because of race. And there but you go. Yeah. So I guess, yeah. So my question but, would be: Was it really dangerous? And if it was, is there anything racist in that? My answer would be no. I mean, there. I don't know if it was. Yeah, it's complicated. So <laughs> I, I mean, I think. I mean, I would like to say that my answer is no too. Yeah. Um, but it's not an absolute no. But then again, as see, we talked about, I don't think an absolute's very well. Well, see, I, I believe there's this thing, you know, and you know what it is, or you've heard it at least, white guilt. Now, there's different ways of looking at that, but white guilt is this thing. And I'm not saying you are a shining example of it, but you kind of touch in it, I think. Uh, you know, when, you talk, when you're talking about your daughter being afraid to go out and you're wondering if there's something racist about her being afraid or about you, you know, whatever. White guilt, I think, just needs to go away because white guilt makes white people who are not racist think they are racist. White guilt occupies too much time and too much thinking. And I, I think white guilt gets in the way of the movement, if we can call it this thing that is you know, anti-racism, if we can call it the movement. It gets in the way of recruiting more white people to be in the movement. Um. You know, either someone is racist or they are not, they're not. And I think everybody knows in their soul whether they are or not. Well, I... Is that too presumptuous? Is I, that too direct? I, I disagree with you. I mean, respectfully yeah. disagree that sure, I, I don't sure. think... I don't think that somebody is racist or not. I, you know, and it gets back maybe to that continuum thing, the shades of gray thing. I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think there's anybody that's absolutely not racist. Um, the, the point is... is and, and another sort of conviction I've had in this work is that I don't think there's any merit or value in worrying about whether somebody's racist or not. No. Um, one of the things that really frustrated me in the making of the film was that people would come and ask me when they found out I was this white guy working on this film about race and why the hell would a white person right. be interested in that, which is like, just because of that, that's why, that's an issue. Um, <laughs> yeah. But they would say, are you gonna talk about how black people are as racist as white people? And I said, we're not gonna talk about how white people are racist. It doesn't matter. What good does it do to point out somebody being a racist? And, and but I think that's that where white guilt can manifest itself. I think white people, some white people who um, are overly sensitive sensitive about racism because they are afraid of being called racist. So rather than tolerate a conversation or engage in a debate, they'll lash out and say things like that. Well, if you're going to ask me questions, can you talk? Can we also talk about how racist black people can be? To me, that is a manifestation of white guilt. Yeah, and I I, I agree that white guilt, and I don't think, I mean, I I guess I might have something in me and a lot of white people who participate in, and as you say, the movement, I, I think there's something akin to white guilt in that, but I, I don't think it's the same thing that the term white guilt typically, um, you know, because, because there has to be, if you're going to engage in this work at any level, and, you know, one of the guilts that I have, I guess, is moving to Norway. I, I sort of have stepped out of that, work and at, at what turned out to be the worst possible time. You know, how did I know that within days of me landing in Norway, Trump would announce that he was going to run for president? Yeah. And, um, 
Would you have gotten but, active in, in campaigning against him or supporting oh, someone? I who was... would have committed suicide. <laughs> I mean, it was so bad. But, but there has to be, to engage in this work, there has to be a recognition of the privilege that white people enjoy and, and a, a recognition that you have to push against that and that you have to be aware that it has given you advantages and, and access to power and resources that enable you to have an impact in this. Um, how, do you, how do you explain to, uh, how do you explain then when it comes to white guilt? You know, I have my method of, of talking about that subject. I think it's a fascinating subject, but how would you answer someone who says, Hey, I um, was a factory worker. My father was a factory worker before me in, uh, in, in up in Cleveland. Ohio, for example, and lost his, my father lost his job. Now I lost my job. I'm struggling. Uh, how can you say, how dare you say that I am a beneficiary of white privilege? I'm jobless. I'm poor. I've struggled my whole life and so did my father before me. What do you say to that white guy? How do you, how would you engage them in a discussion? Well, I think the most important thing would, would be to recognize their pain and their situation with respect and not belittle them as not getting it. Um, and, you know, and I probably wouldn't handle it as well as I should. And it's easier for probably me to, to answer this question to you than it would be to that person. And I'm probably not going to do a very good job of even that. But um, <laughs> I, I think an important thing to point out is that Yes, that happens. And because you have white privilege doesn't mean that everything is easy for you. Um, it doesn't solve all the problems. But the, the big thing is, is that your whiteness isn't your problem. Um, well said. And, Very well said. And, and there's, there's no, it's highly, highly unlikely that the reason that those things happen to you can be attributed to your whiteness. Whereas if you're black, then there's a much higher probability that some of your misfortune, if not all of your misfortune, can be contributed to your blackness. And That is so and, well said. Yeah. And you said my, you didn't my, know if you could answer this right or well. Well, I'm just making shit up as I go. But, <laughs> well, good um, job. You know, that's, <laughs> Evening at the improv. <laughs> it's, not a, it's, it's not a big, broad brush. I mean, there, it's not. There, there's a lot of nuance. There's a lot of individual sure. things that happen. But, sure. It's the, the big tendencies, it, it bears out across across the thing. But I, I want to revisit the, the white guilt thing without hopefully beating it to death. Um, one of the things that amazes me in the conversations that we have now um, is how defensive white people get when you talk about race. Yeah. And I think that's what white guilt is. Yes. Um, I agree. It's... It's because certain white people, and it would seem to be most white people, when the conversation turns to race, they shut down, they get defensive, they get upset. Yeah. And I don't know how often I've ever said this out loud, um, but I think it's important to say, and especially after what we talked about, whether I'm a racist or not, I don't ever feel that way. You don't, you don't ever feel what way that when people start talking about racism. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel like I'm under attack. No, no. And why is that? And why is it that certain people feel like they're under attack? 
And, and I think it's because they deep down feel that they might be racist. Yes. Um, and, and maybe, and this is totally off topic and probably irresponsible, but I just kind of, <laughs> maybe I'm trying to be funny. I don't know. But um, I, I think the same thing is true about when you start talking about homosexuality. That. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I, think the, I think the term homophobia, I don't know if it ever has been scientifically, but I think at least interestingly, in many ways, I think the fear of that is the fear that I might be that. And, and so you have this worry that yes. you're being, um, that you're being racist because yes, there's something in me that I got to work through. And I don't want to admit that I don't want to work through because, because one of the fundamental features of white privilege is that we are continually told that we're not privileged. You know, white privilege operates because white people are taught that they don't have these advantages. Um, And, and so you keep forgetting, you know, one of the favorite lines in that article by Peggy McIntosh was she said, every time I would think about this, I would come up with all these different examples of, you know, things that make me privileged. But then if I didn't write them down, five minutes later, I couldn't remember any of them. Right. And um, because we're just conditioned over. Yeah. So that there's a, yeah. So that there's, so that there's a lack of awareness of the privilege because yeah, it's uh, that's the way a lot of white people are raised. That's the way all white people are raised. I was trying to be nice, but okay. (laughs) Uh, Maybe not all, but until (laughs) recently all. Yeah. Um, but white guilt, but, to it. but but that's what I was talking about earlier when I said white guilt gets in a lot of it gets in the way of a lot of progression. It gets in the way of a lot of discussion because uh, it, it it just sh- it shuts down the conversation. Uh, people can get extremely defensive at the at the very notion of a discussion about race, and then there is no discussion, and then there is no progress. There's just animosity and finger pointing and blaming, and that, that's why. The- there has to be a very conscious, intentional effort to not finger point or blame exactly. or accuse. Yes. Um, you know, we're not we're not here to decide whether somebody's a racist or not. No. Um, I assume that everybody is far from being a racist. That is my assumption with everybody that I meet. You have to say and do things. You have to show me that you're a racist before the thought of whether or not you're a racist will even come to mind. That's the way I live. I, I guess the way I live is, I don't know how I live. That's probably my problem. I don't really have a good <laughs> principle, but uh, I, I think that. I know I a good shrink. I mean, maybe it's being where I'm from. And, you know, the last time I went home was, too damn long ago because of COVID, but it was about a year and a half ago. And I was going to a conference in Atlanta and I took about 10 days off before that and hung out with my parents. And um, it was the most uncomfortable situation because really, you know, my dad, and I'm probably going to betray a lot of confidence to saying this, so maybe I won't share this link with anybody, but. <laughs> I don't have any listeners. Nobody listens to this. Yeah, I was hoping that. But my um, my dad voted for Hillary. Um, and I think I'm the only person he's ever told okay. that. 
including my brother that lives with him. He's not, he, because he would be run out of town yeah. if, if people thought, I mean, and he's like this, the most popular famous guy in the city is a pediatrician and he's retired now, but he's like a demigod and yeah. people would lose all respect for him if they thought that he didn't worship Trump. Right. Uh, right. So, but he's the only person in this town I grew up in that I could be with and not be scared of getting into a fight over politics. It was that bad. And, and so maybe it, I was afraid it would be that bad. And I sort of skirted around it and got into a couple of little um, playful moments, but it was mostly just dancing around and being careful that all these lifelong relationships were going to be yeah. permanently ended yeah. because of, you know, there's, you can't, like you were saying, you can't debate, you just argue and scream and, you know, everybody's calling each other idiots because they can't understand how somebody could think that way. And, it's just, it's so uncomfortable, but, but because of that and being, I mean, I remember 20 years ago, I had a, took my mom to see a play that a friend of mine owned, ran a community theater outside of Birmingham and, and they did inherit the wind, you know, on the Scopes monkey trial. Uh -huh. And so I took my mom to see this play and, and we're driving home and we start talking about it at this sort of philosophical level and then she says, Rob, what went wrong? You were raised to be such a good conservative boy. <laughs> um, where, where, did, where did I go so wrong? And I said, well, Mom, every leftist or liberal political inclination I've ever had comes straight from what I learned in Sunday school. And, and it just sort of blew her mind. Um, that and, is interesting. And, you know, it's like, I can't, I can't justify the things I learned in Sunday school yeah. with Republican politics. It does not make any sense to me. So you said um, that to your mother, an Alabama woman, solidly conservative. You said that to her. Yeah. And she reacted how? She just, she couldn't believe it. But then we didn't have pol political conversations until, well, okay. Um, until Hillary <laughs> ran for president. Okay. 15 years later or whatever. Okay. Um, uh, and, and so it's, you know, and we still don't have political conversations, but, but the, the point of that was um, that I've been a liberal. Um, even when I was at Michigan state, I was heavily studying Marxism because I was studying 19th century literature and it seemed <clears> like a, a useful lens for reading early 19th century British literature with the, yeah. Same context that Marx was critiquing. Sure. I never, never signed anything or really considered myself a Marxist, but it it did interest me. And um, but everybody I grew up with is a totally different end of the spectrum than I am. And so it's either I take today's political you know movement and just hate all of them, and, and not have any family or friends, or I just learn to deal with it and stay away from that kind of thing, but still love people that I don't agree with. But, and, but and isn't it somewhat unnatural to not discuss these social issues and politics with people who you are close with? Um, I get sometimes. it. People want to avoid those conversations. You know, they say you should avoid talking about politics and um, religion and religion with the people whom you love. Uh, I don't agree with that. 
I think oh, it's such I, a such an integral part of any relationship to talk about those things. Well, I I do talk about them sometimes with certain people, um, and I guess it depends on the relationship too. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, like my mom and I will talk about religion quite a bit. Um, we won't talk much about politics and when i start talking about it she'll say hold on now don't go there and, <laughs> and, um you know my my favorite story about my mom was when i was in michigan and i came home for christmas or something and we sat up till two o'clock in the morning and had this really powerful conversation and i had her completely convinced that that i was right and that she had always been wrong and that she'd finally seen the light and then it Eight or nine o'clock in the morning, the next morning at the breakfast table, it was like nothing had happened. It was everything uh, had just reset. Uh, <laughs> That's kind of selective funny. memory. Uh, well, I, I I love those conversations with my mother. Um, <clears throat> now she and I agree on all things political and social, but it's just interesting to get someone from her generation's uh, unfiltered view on how things are. Uh, my mom was born in 1947, 47. Yeah. And so we, so we talk and we talk about politics and stuff and she has very solid opinions about, uh, you know, about Trump and about politics and how all that stuff goes. But what I think is interesting now, this was a couple weekends ago. I was talking with her for about two and a half, almost three hours about all things, politics, social things going on back home. And it was very interesting because she used to work in the federal court system uh, in a federal district there in Ohio. And she knows a lot of these, uh, you know, if you watch CNN, you'll see some of these lawyers uh, working at the Justice Department who are prosecuting uh, these, these, these insurrectionists that, were, that are being arrested one after the other uh, after January 6th. Mm-hmm. And... It's so interesting to hear her view, um, you know, because you hear the rhetoric out there that the left doesn't care about the law. You know what I mean? You know, the, the law and order party is the Republican Party. And, you know, she'll mention one of these prosecutors that I see on the news and say, oh, yeah, he's, uh, you know, he's a, he's a Democrat. You know, because they, 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 never, they never say what party they're in line with, of course, they're trying to be professional. But my mom knows some of these guys. Oh yeah, he's a Democrat. Oh yeah, she's a Democrat too. Oh, he's, you know, and it just it 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 just destroys this narrative that's out there. It's a very divisive narrative that it's only the right that is for law and order. The left is willy nilly chaos, leftist, communist. Do as you please. To me, none right. of those things match, but that's what they're saying. And it's just interesting to hear. Uh, my mother's view and her little pieces of information that she has. I'm trying so hard to get her to come on my podcast, but she is, uh, she's not anti-technology, but she has no cell phone. She's never had one. She's never had a computer. She doesn't know anything about the internet. So to get her up on a live link like this, it just would never, I, I don't know how I would do. I would probably have to buy her a computer just to do the podcast episode and then sell it for her the day after. Could you figure out, I mean, there upcoming opportunities hopefully before too very long that you could go visit her and do it that way um that is what i would like to do um we had made plans we had bought tickets and everything to go uh we we're going to take a cruise we we're going to fly into 
Um, was it Tallahassee? Is there an airport in Tallahassee? No, Orlando. We're going to fly into Orlando, rent a car, drive down to Miami, and then take a um, like a safari through the Everglades, then back to Miami, take a cruise through the Caribbean, come back to Orlando, and then drive up north back into Ohio. And uh, it was going to be a really nice, you know, one of those, you know, four four and a half week long vacations where you can really feel like you're visiting back home in the States. You've got to do it that long if you're going to get a real experience. And I have to admit, it hurts my heart that I, that I didn't get to do that. You know, I have my daughter and grandkids there too. I I haven't gotten to see them since 2019. So it's, it's, uh, well, and then before 2019, the, the time prior to that was in 2015, when I combined a powerlifting competition that I was in with a family visit. And then before that time in 2015, the last time was in like 2005. So I have not been home. My mother has been here twice though, to kind of fill, fill the gaps, but uh, I am, uh, I am not home often enough and it breaks my heart. Yeah. But getting her on the podcast is something I really want to do. And if, you know, if I have to wait until I actually get there and then do it, you know, live with her in her living room, then that's what I'll do. But uh, she's got a wealth of knowledge about, uh, she just has a different view on things. She's got that old school, uh, I call her a conservative Democrat, that old school conservative Democrat way of looking at things. Um, She's very practical, and she just, she just knows things. She's seen things, you know, working in the, the, the federal court system like she did for all those years. It's, uh, she'll, probably be my, she'll probably be my best. Uh, yeah, sorry, Rob, you cannot be my best podcast guest. It'll be my mom. Oh, no, I'm not even top five. <laughs> I'll give you top five. Top five. <laughs> for now, we'll see. No, I, um, here's one thing I want to ask you. How did you come up with, okay, now we've been talking about your film, but how did you come up with the concept for this? What made Um, you want to do it? I still don't want to have done it. It was, I, did you feel it was necessary or something that had to be done? Well, it, you wanted to shine a light. It's one of these things that sort of just evolves out of something you don't expect. Um, I had, we'd moved to Mobile and we were kind of looking for a church. We'd been to a church for a while that we got to where we weren't that happy. And we had another one recommended to us and we went to it. And just as part of the announcements during the service, they said that tonight at six o'clock, the Mobile United Race Relations Committee will be meeting here at the church. And they're going to be showing some documentary films from this program at the University of Alabama where these students make these films, I think it was called Documenting Justice. And so I went to that, um, really interesting conversations and really interesting little eight minute video segments that these students had made. And, and I just got involved in the race relations committee. And then I kind of realized other than those cool little sessions like that, they would meet once a month and they would read an article and it was a Newsweek or something about race. And it'd be like four old white ladies and me okay. um, talking about this. And I was like, so they weren't do doing, there was really no chance of there being any significant influence or change at that point. Not really. And then they came to me and said, we want you to be the chair of the race relations committee next year. And I said, well, I was kind of thinking about quitting this because there's nothing really happening, but 
if if I'm going to be in charge of it, I want something to happen. I don't know what, but we've got to do something that has an impact beyond the three people having this conversation. And so then about the time I became the chair, the, the director, whatever her title was, of the Mobile United Group, and this other um, person who was a colleague of mine at South Alabama found this website. And I think it was the New Yorker, maybe. And it was just a collage of pictures from the civil rights movement, um, except they were sort of reenactments of pictures from the civil rights movement okay. with the people that were in the pictures, as I recall. This was 10 years ago. And, but you click on a picture and the little video window pops up and played a one minute or two minute video about that story. Yeah. And, and so we're like, we should do something like this about Mobile and race. And so that was the original plan was to try to copy that little bit. And then it just evolved um, that, you know, Hank Aaron is from Mobile. That's right. Mobile. That's right. And, and so I, my first thought was, wouldn't it be awesome if we could um, interview Hank Aaron? And then it turns out that one of the leaders in Mobile United is best friends with his wife. And so we were able to set up an appointment with is she, Hank Aaron. Is she still alive, his wife? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I, I haven't heard not. Okay. You know, he yeah. died just a few months ago. Right, right. Um, but, and that was probably one of the coolest times of my life. Well, I can um, imagine. My, I was a big Hank Aaron fan. He broke the record on my birthday. Oh, did he? I was nine years old. Um, uh. and, and then... But I had an uncle that lived in Florida, and he was in poor health. And so my dad said, if I drive to Mobile, will you drive me to visit Uncle Jim and um, stay a few days, and we'll come back? And and then it was during my son's spring break, and so we said, hey, you don't have anything to do. And he was like, what would that be, 15 maybe? Um, and so he said, why don't you come with us? And And then we decided that instead of – and I had this appointment in Atlanta on Thursday, and we were leaving like Saturday or Sunday or whatever. And so I was like, instead of driving all the way back to Mobile and then me driving back to Atlanta, why don't we just stay in Florida an extra day and drive straight up to Atlanta from Melbourne? And and so my dad, me, and my son go into Fulton County Stadium – and spend an hour and a half or so with Hank Aaron. How and, cool is that? And, and uh, then we leave, and, and my dad was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever been a part of. That's just amazing. Uh, that was a really wonderful, cool day. That's so cool. Everybody has, well, not everybody, a lot of people have that that one story they can tell about some celebrity, some hero of theirs that they had direct contact with, and it's always such a cool thing. Mine was uh, the producer, Elliot Roberts, producer for uh, Neil Young, um, Janis Joplin, Linda Ronstadt. I had a two-hour car drive alone with him, driving him back from a a studio out in um, uh, Speed, from Speed, and then back to Drummond, because he was producing a project. I was a songwriter for a country album. And oh, he was awesome. uh, he was working with. I'll, I'll never forget it. Two hours alone with that guy, um, once in a lifetime, once in a lifetime experience. And then yours yeah. was with Hank Aaron. 
Well, wow. Most, most of the famous people I've met, famous is in a small bucket, I guess, but, um, you know, Mobile Black and White. I got to hang out with Michael Eric Dyson for a while. I love I got, that guy. Um, I got to, you know. There's a guy who can talk about all things. That guy uh, is, uh, his oratory skills are just incredible. What a great speaker. And and John Powell and um, Peggy McIntosh. You know, I was, you know, she, I met her at a conference in North Carolina and we did the interview and then we sat and talked for an hour and a half after that about poetry. Ah, and, how cool is that? Yeah. And then I told her I was going to Boston a few years ago for a grant project here in Norway. And, um, and so I said, Hey, I'm going to be in Boston for this week in August. Is there any chance we could get together for coffee? And she said, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? How and cool. So huh. I just, you know, had dinner with her and, wow. um, you know, and Hank Aaron and Brian Stevenson. That was Brian Stevenson. He's um, he runs the Equal Justice Initiative in Montgomery, and he's he's become quite famous in the U.S. Um, there was a documentary on HBO about him, and then he um, there was a movie that Michael A. Jordan played him in, um, that we just watched a few weeks ago. But anyway, I just wrote his name down. I need to check him out. I don't watch his TED Talk. Him. It's amazing. But you know, I. I interviewed him by myself and it was a weird you know, cause kind of the way that we did the, the film was if I were by myself, I would set up the camera like here and I would be sitting on this side of the camera so I could see the, the viewfinder, yeah. but also have a direct line of sight to them. And I was right. situating sort of like the way that the screen looks now and you're on my right. I would have you on that side of the screen looking diagonally across to me. So I'd say, don't look at the camera, look at me. And, <laughs> and because I'd been doing a lot of these, but when I wasn't there, sorry, um, my colleague was there with me. She would, she would do the interview. So okay. she would sit on the other side of the camera and we would situate the subject on the left side of the frame. And so they would look across to the right side so that people would switch back and forth. Yeah. And, but I conducted a lot of interviews by myself in a row. And so everybody was on the right side. And so, so I've got to change this. And so with him, I had no idea who this guy was. Um, I didn't know he was about to blow up and be one of the major voices about race in America. Um, and so I set up the camera and then I moved over to the other side and interviewed him without seeing the footage at all as it was happening, which was uh. stupid. But, um, but it was like 45 minutes. And I, I got in my car thinking, well, if this is going to be a 90 minute movie, we've got half of it done. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everything he said was perfect. So that was the um, original plan. It was going to be 90 minutes. Well, just something like that. Yeah. You know, you're thinking that's, you don't want it on that to be too much longer than that. No. And, and the, and the, the, the feature version, I think, is 91 minutes long. How, um, did, how did you get it funded? We didn't. You didn't. I mean, we wow. had, I mean, all, all the money that went into this was travel money. Okay. Like, um, I went to a conference in Chicago and we interviewed Tim Wise and a couple of other people. And then I went to the conference. I didn't actually go to the conference. I just went to the hotel and interviewed Peggy McIntosh and, and somebody else. But Mobile in Black and White would give us a few hundred dollars here and there to to travel places and okay. my university bought us the camera 
mostly for me to use in my work at the university, but you know, the initiative to get it was because of the film. I um, see. But I think I got paid $750 somewhere. We got a, we got a grant after the film was pretty much finished right. from, from the County commission to do some work on it. Okay. And I think I got paid $750 and we paid a guy to help us sort of master it. Um, who did most of his work for free, but we were able to give him a little bit of money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there was, there was, it would have been a lot better if we'd have had funding. You know, the music is terrible because it's all open source free stuff. And the, yeah, and but then, it, it's not terrible. I mean, to, in my ear, I can hear that it's that, you know, that open source, it's, you know, it's free. You can download it from wherever. Um, but it's not terrible. I mean, it's, uh, it, it mm-hmm. gives the proper amb- ambiance. I could have done better yeah. as a musician. Call well, me I, next time. Call me next I would have time. I'm better as a musician too if I'd have had time. But yeah, I, was, I see that. I see that uh, acoustic bass behind you there. Yeah, it's a piece of crap. But oh, I'm come on. Another, I'm trying to figure out how to get a, a bass now. Um, I didn't. I've got two at home. I didn't bring them with me. Electric basses. I'm a. I'm a lefty. Um, I have one bass. It's a Carvin five string, and I would so much love to have a four string you just get rid of that fifth string it's just too much to worry about but it is impossible to find a decent bass uh here in norway that's left-handed i could order one but i that scares the living daylights out of me to buy something that i can't touch and try out first yeah me too so. I've, I've, i'm teaching a course this summer um for this thing called the bergen summer research school i'm co-teaching it with two music guys um one's a very accomplished trumpet player and another one's a even more accomplished saxophone player and um, clarinet player. And it's just like, I'm supposed to play with these guys. The, the school has asked us to play this thing. Okay. And so I've got to, I've got to figure out how to get a, a better bass than this one. Yeah. Um, you could borrow one, so, borrow, borrow um, one for that gig. Well, I have to borrow it to practice because the stuff that I've got to be good to play with these. I, I used to be really good. Um, <laughs> you know, the story I like to tell about brushing with fame, which is kind of, a ridiculous disappointment when you frame it that way is, you know, I was in a band in college that if we had stayed together, um, we would have at least gotten a record deal. We probably wouldn't have gotten famous, but we'd have made a record that somebody else would have paid for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and now the singer in that band is touring with Aerosmith and oh. the Hollywood vampires. He's the background singer and keyboard player for Aerosmith. And, um, wow, so we were pretty good as Alabama rock bands go. Do you have a uh, Do you have a good voice for singing backup? Uh, I've always said I'm a world class. I'm an average choir tenor and a world class background singer. Well, there you go. Yeah, but I'm maybe not world class, but um, yeah, <laughs> good, good enough for Norway. Good enough not, for Bergen. So I'm not a very good lead singer. But, oh um, man, I, I I want to get back on the stage so bad. Oh, my my main thing is writing for for other artists, and it's always come to the detriment of my own solo project. I should have had an album or two out by now. Uh, all I have is four singles out there for my solo project because I never I never get around to it. I'm always writing for other people, and uh, that whole thing about fronting my own band and and being on stage, I miss it. I, I, COVID just needs to go away so I can get back on stage. I don't care about anything else. I just want to get back on stage. 
I've been a, I've been a lead singer one time and it was the most uncomfortable situation in my life. Really? A, oh man, I love about, it. About three jobs ago. Um, <laughs> this was, this was after Katrina because there was a, you know, I worked at the UAB school of public health, university of Alabama, Birmingham. And after Katrina closed Tulane for several months, yeah. some people that worked in the Tulane school of public health came up to Birmingham and were working with us and their video guy was a great guitar player okay. and a huge Zeppelin fan. Yeah. And so then I guess it was at Christmas time, the school decided to have a talent show. And one of the IT guys that was in our office played drums. And, um, and so we decided we would do this band and, and I was going to be the bass player, but then we found out one of the programmers was a bass player and that we kind of got guilted into letting him be in the band. And so then I got stuck being the singer. And, and so we played our song for competition and I sang and we won, which was kind of cool. cool. But then they wanted us to just jam. And there was a song that the other guy didn't know. And so I got his bass. And once I was playing the bass and singing, I felt a lot more comfortable, but I, I just felt so goofy sitting up there singing. Uh, I, I guess if I were better looking, it would be different, but I, I, don't, I don't have the classic lead singer. No, I, um, I, lo I love being the front man. I, I, I'm, a, I'm so much of an extrovert when I'm on stage, whether it's for my music or for stand-up. But uh, in life in general, I'm the isolated, quiet guy. I'll sit back and observe Oh, that's and me. yeah, on I don't stage. like, I don't like being the front figure, uh, off stage. Not at all. No, I saw that bass. I saw that bass there and it just reminded me that you were, you are a musician. I remember you had said that before. I think I saw a picture was, of you online too, from back in the day. I was, I was once a musician. I don't play that much. Nah, it's always in the blood, man. It is. Yeah, it's um, a difference between being a practicing musician and just a musician. There's yeah. a difference. Yeah. But always a musician though. Always. Yeah. So let me ask you one quick thing before we go. Um, are there going to be any other projects like the one you've done with uh, Mobile in Black and White? I don't it's a little know. different I'm, now. Now you're here in Norway. You've got a different perspective. Uh, and I'm really busy. I mean, a friend of mine joked when we were over here secretly and, um, you know, for not telling anybody at my old university that I was here. And the hardest thing, you know, <laughs> staying off of Facebook while we're here, not posting anything. Uh, and, you can't hide forever, though. And, and then we're on our way home. We flew from Bergen to Oslo. And it was just kind of weird that I was in the second row by myself and my wife was next to me in the full row. Mm. Um, and then there was a lady that looked kind of wealthy and important came and sat in front of me. Um, and then two people that sort of looked kind of spiffy and suspicious, you know, the yeah. kind of secret service -y people. Yeah. And I had no idea. I was in there reading my Kindle on my iPad. And then we're, we're getting off the plane and my wife says, do you know who that was in front of you? I was like, I have no idea. I didn't pay attention. She said, that was the prime minister of Norway. And, and it just, freaked me out a little bit um i should have said this is a really small place you're going to that you're flying and this was this is what, what, what year was this this was 2015 it was 2015 Arna. so that was uh jen stoltenberg yeah. no it was oh, no that was Arna. that was Arna then yeah yeah and um i saw her on a plane once and i i put it i sent a 
I don't remember if I put, I think I put it on Facebook. You know, when you, when you sit behind, sit on a plane behind the prime minister of Norway and have no idea. <laughs> and, um, and so this friend of mine started messaging me and, um, and I told them about all this stuff that was going on. And, and um, he was like, well, you know, you need to, you need to take this. You need to, to move to, um, move to Norway. And then, then you can make a film called Norway in white and white. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> now that's a film that needs to be made. That is a documentary film that needs to be made. I did sort of start a thing where, um, <laughs> after the sort of between the election and the inauguration of Trump, I interviewed six or seven people about the impact that Trump's election might have on Norway. And I started piecing it together and, um, but I didn't have time to do it by myself. And there was another guy that I was kind of working with and, and we just never could really get synchronized and what our thinking was and, and what, what was happening. And, and then the more, the more into my position that I got at, at the university, the less time I had to devote to it. And then it just kind of got to where yeah. it was, the moment was sort of gone for it. But do you um, think it's something that you could go, maybe not that same subject matter, but do you think you will ever be interested in doing some sort of a documentary film again? You know, I, that you would actually actively make time for it so that you can do it? If there were a time to be actively made. Um, but a lot of it has to do with just the, you have to have the right idea. That's true. You know, no. with... You know, I didn't have time to make Mobile Black and White, and I was told from the beginning, this is not part of your job. Um, you do this on your own time. Yeah. And then um, it was actually something around that that was what made me upset at my boss that made me decide to move here. Um, but, you know, if it's this thing that I feel really committed to doing, then that would make it easier. But the, the challenge that I have, and some of it is just sort of the, perfectionist and high bar I put on myself about things is um, we got away with it with mobile black and white of just having talking heads um, and no budget to, to dress it up. Um, I, I learned very quickly in the making of that film that I am a poet and I'm, I'm good with words and I have a really good verbal imagination but I have a very bad and limited visual imagination. Okay. And, um, and I also have a hard time moving from poet to, to storyteller. And, and so the way that I sort of made mobile and black and white work, at least for me, um, is I treated it like a text and I'm sort of, you can envision it as sort of being like a poem where you have these lines that different yeah. people speak and you sort of, fit them together in a way that sort of works coherently. Um, or you can think of it as sort of like a qualitative research project, which is the way I justified it as somewhat infringing on my work was that, you know, we're interviewing all these people and we're combining all of their voices together into a, a new sort of text. And, and that works in certain subjects. And, um, but, as I did it and got sort of locked into that process, and this is the way that this film is going to be because we don't have time to do it any other way. Yeah. Um, I started learning more about how you're supposed to do documentary films. 
and and how you need to tell these individual stories. Well, we're thinking if the point of our film is to not is to get people from thinking about racism as a structural thing rather than an individual thing. If you tell individual stories to to shed light on um, structural issues, then it's easy for the naysayers to go, well, that's just that person's experience. Yeah, I see. I see. And, and so I was sort of, from the beginning, against that, doing too many individual stories or focusing it too much on an individual. And then two, I was against having a narrator because then it becomes a single voice that you can assign an agenda to. Right. Um, uh, and so I wanted wow, to. Wow, you put a lot sure of thought in how it was going to be presented. But but it breaks every rule of documentary filmmaking. And and now I I got set on that path before I knew what the rules are. And now I, I feel guilty when I started that path with the Trump thing. I, I started, and this stuff is not as compelling and it's not as interesting. And people who are Norwegian were speaking in English and they weren't doing it as yeah. naturally. Um, I mean, they did great, brilliant things, but it was just not as free-flowing as when you have um, people like Michael Eric Dyson and, and John Powell and Brian Stevenson speaking like the same talking points they make every day. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, that was the hard thing about the film anyway, was once you have those voices in there, how do you get the attorney from Mobile to not sound like an idiot? When right, exactly. Right um, and that was that was the hardest thing was having this great footage from all these people that you just couldn't insult them by having them follow somebody else who talks about this every day at right. such a high level that you know we could make five movies from the interviews we have from over black oh, and white. Wow. Well, I, I have to say, I think it was very well done. Um, you know, you say you did it uh, kind of differently from what the rules uh, dictate. And I think that's obvious, but I think that's a good thing. I think it was very well done, um, even though I haven't seen the whole thing. And I was on the the fourth, I think it was the fourth video about halfway through. Um, is there is there someplace people can go to see it all in one shot to where it's not broken up? Because I, I went on to your, uh, your, your uh, YouTube page is where I linked into it. But is there another place where they can find it? Um. I can't remember. I'll have to look. There's a website, mobileblackandwhite.org, that has a lot of stuff on it. Um, Mobileblackandwhite.org. Well. Uh, okay. And then there's the YouTube channel, Mobile Black and White. And I can't remember if the feature is up there. We've okay. always kind of kept the feature behind a password on Vimeo, but it is available on Amazon Prime. Is um, it? Okay. Uh, and you know that's that's where I've made my money off of this project. I get between three and four dollars every month from people watching it on Amazon Prime. You sound so, like a but, modern musician who gets zero point zero 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 one cents off of Spotify per stream. That's that's, that's welcome my, to uh, the club. <laughs> that's my retirement plan. <laughs> there you go. That's all you need in Norway. <laughs> I always say, I always say, we have our place, we have our little farm up north uh, in Finnmark on the island of Ceyland. And I always say, we don't need a pension up there. We just need a, a fishing pole, a boat, and uh, a pot to boil the potatoes and fish in, and we'll be fine. And a room for Rob. Huh? And room for Rob. Room for Rob. <laughs> <laughs> there's, always, there's always room for Rob up there. Absolutely. Listen, man, I want to, I want to. Thank you for giving me so much of your time. Shouldn't you be teaching students right now? What are you talking to me for two I hours for? Students. I teach professors. 
excuse me, professor. Well, they're your students. You're the teacher. Uh, they're your students. We don't call them students. That wouldn't make them feel belittled. Would that make, would that make them feel belittled? Nah, uh, they, I, they I need to lighten up a little bit. I, well, that's a different, that's a different conversation, but um, no, I, I should be writing things now, but yeah. Are you coming, more, you coming with more poetry? Um, not lately. I have oh. a few ideas. I've, my poetry writing has slowed down since I moved here. Okay. But um, what what I need to do, and I have your email address. In April in America is National Poetry Month. Okay. Um, so every April since I've lived here, I send out a poem a day um, to almost 300 people now on email. Um, yes. So you're going to be on that list. And Thank some you. Of them will, some of them will be my poems and some of them will be other poems, but the the theme of, of, I haven't figured out completely what I'm going to do yet, but the theme of this year's exercise will be sort of the subject matter we've been discussing most today. Okay. So there'll be a lot of poetry around politics and race. Yeah. Hook me in on that thread. Send that to me. Absolutely. You know, I, um, I used to write a lot of poetry when I was younger, uh, high school and, and college years. Mostly it was I was trying to get girls to like me, so I sent them poems. It didn't, didn't work. That is, that is not... Didn't work. That's not I, why I you're supposed to write. That's not, that, the song's fart, maybe, but the... But I, my, most of the writing I do now is, is songwriting, and, but, but I've always had this desire to go back into the poetry thing. We were cleaning out the garage here, um, middle of summer, and my wife pulled up a bunch of boxes and had some of some of my old paperwork from my cop days and estates and things like that. And I also found this little notebook from maybe 10th or 11th grade where I had written some poems. And it's like, when I opened that up and I read it, it took me right back to those days. And it just opened up that thing in my mind that says write poetry. And I haven't gotten back to it, but it's always been in the back of my mind since I found that little notebook again. Well, so that's, I wish I did it more, but I've broken all the rules again. You know, a lot of creative writing teachers will say, you have to write every day. And I did that once for three days in a row, and that was as long as I could sustain it. I would say you have to write every time you are inspired to write, and that may or may not be every day. I only write a poem that demands to be written, and it usually there takes you go. a exactly. while exactly. to, you know, I'll get an idea bouncing around in my head, and sometimes it'll be there for a year. Yeah. And, um, and I've got some about somewhere ahead now that have been in there for decades almost, but I, one day I'll sit down and write them. But often they, when you, when they actually say, okay, this is what you're going to do, they come out to be the best poems. Yeah. Um, I think it's the same thing with songwriting too. You can't force it. You just have to do it when it fits and it fits when it feels like it fits. You know, inspiration is a very, um, for me, inspiration cannot be ignored. If I feel that inspiration to write, I've got to do it. And when I do do it like that, it's perfect. There's nothing to yeah. fix, nothing to change. It's a finished piece of work. Yeah. Yeah. One of, one of my best known poems by friends that 50 people know it. it was, um, I was in the process of moving to Mobile. We lived outside of Birmingham and we were moving to Mobile. And I, I saw this, they were doing a bunch of construction in Montgomery. And so traffic was really backed up and we were going really slow and, and then this bum just kind of stumbles out of traffic into the, you know, side rail. And, and as I go by him, I look in my mirror and it, 
looks just like Jesus looking into my mirror. And so for the next 10 minutes or so, as we're working through downtown Montgomery, I, I start thinking about how you know, maybe this could be a poem. Yeah. And so when I got out of traffic, I pulled off on the off ramp on the, the shoulder and um, pulled out my laptop that just happened to be in the footwell of the passenger seat and just wrote it out in probably a minute. And it's, it's Ins- one of my inspiration calls. Yeah. Inspiration calls and you have to answer. Yeah. Um, you got to do it. Yeah. Listen, man, I could talk to you forever, but right now it hurts to talk to you. This neck and shoulder from that operation. Oh, sorry. sorry a, I talk so much. No, no. I mean, I did my share as well, and this is a great conversation. Um, I mean, this this is the kind of conversation that I want my listeners to be able to hear. First, for, I do it for myself, first of all. I'm very selfish like that. I want to talk to people that I'm interested in. I want to talk to people that can you know, put something on the table that's going to feed me and my desire to learn new things, or it's going to be something that can help me further along my path. And you did that. I think that you are, um, you're the perfect example of what I saw uh, throughout the course of this past summer. Uh, Namely, the fact that there are, you know, black people are not alone. We are more united along the lines of race than we are divided. I truly believe that. Um, what can I say? Thanks for this conversation, man. I knew I wasn't going to regret it. And uh, in fact, it leaves me wanting to talk more. Well, let's do talk more. And yeah. I, I, I hope, I'm pretty sure I learned as much or more from you as, as your, your listeners learned from me. So it's been, it's been a pleasure and look forward to talking to you again, not necessarily on recording, but, um, <laughs> but it's great to actually have a live conversation with you and look forward to many more. Thanks a lot, my friend. Thanks. Bye, everybody.